Well, you may not like Milton, but uh, you don't want to torture the guy. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, this is an interesting discussion we were having last week on uh, trial by fire. Okay, You arrived at Washington State University, uh, professor of comparative literature. got that squared away. And you told us a little bit about what your associations were in the Department of Literature and teaching according to politically correct form or or being chastised for not teaching to politically correct form. Where, where are we at with that? Well, I was in the English department, and actually became the uh, director of the Humanities program, which was an interdisciplinary program where philosophy and literature and poetry and drama and film and dance and opera and painting and all kinds of things could be included. And, And I had been trained in graduate school in interdisciplinary studies as well as international studies. So um, I was always interested in fusing things together. And ultimately, I became part of a project on teaching world civilizations. And that was another thing we could talk about sometime that had a huge influence on me. I wouldn't say that I was particularly judged um, at all by most of my colleagues. I got more flack for common errors in English usage than I ever did for anything political and literature, but I was thought of eventually as being less political because I disagreed with some, what I took to be very narrow approaches to literature that we were talking about last time. Mm-hmm. One of the approaches or uh, sub-disciplines in literature and art would be this concept of post-colonial. You were going to say something about that. Yes. Yeah, the same year that uh, Common Errors in English Usage was first published, the other book of mine that's still in print uh, was published entitled uh, Modern South Asian Literature in English. I had become fascinated with India and um, South Asia generally, including Pakistan and Sri Lanka. Partly through uh, traveling there and going with a group for this world civilizations faculty uh, and really being fascinated by India and things Indian. Uh, And then I also was taken by the controversy over Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses. I've always been attracted to controversial topics. You know, if there's something that everybody's getting very agitated about and attacking, then that makes me want to see, well, what is it that might be said for this, this thing? And, of course, uh, the political atmosphere at the time was such that people came down all over the place on the satanic verses. Uh, Rushdie, of course, his first language is English, and he's lived abroad since he was a young kid who was sent off to school uh, in London. And so Indian writers and Indian politicians and so-called post-colonial critics are very quick to dismiss him as somebody who did not speak properly for the people of India. Whenever I hear somebody saying that an author is unrepresentative and doesn't speak for a population, um, I I always think of Faulkner and the way the Mississippians considered him for so long, not speaking for us. 
you know, or uh, James Joyce, mm. not speaking for the Irish. That's not the job uh, of a creative writer to become the, the voice of the uh, political views of the majority of people in their homeland. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. But at any rate, I decided to go and see what was going on in the Satanic Verses and soon discovered that uh, not only did the people who were attacking it didn't, didn't seem to know at all what the book was about, um, but although it was a huge bestseller, very few people seemed to have finished it, and I quickly discovered why. It's, it's very complex. It is extremely elusive. It refers to all kinds of um, movies and books and political events and uh, historical events. It has many different languages influencing it. Did you say elusive or elusive? Elusive, yeah. yes. Elusive. Elusive. It's always alluding to things. And in order to understand, and of course he's a very funny writer as well, it's a satirical novel. And so to catch the jokes, you had to know a lot. And I thought, well, no wonder this is baffling people. Every two or three lines, you have to look something up to say, what is he talking about here? So I set myself the task of trying to annotate the satanic verses and say, well, uh, all I'm going to do here is try to explain what it is that Rushdie had in mind. And in the end, I wound up corresponding with graduate students in various parts of the world, Australia, Switzerland, Scotland, and Finland. We're all working on the Satanic Verses, and this is the early days of Internet scholarship, and we were able to toss things back and forth. And, well, what do you think he's referring to here? And, and it was really a wonderful experience. And that took five years uh, to complete. When I finally thought I had everything except, I think, five illusions down, uh, I managed to write to Rushdie and say, well, what do you think? And he came back and said, well, um, here's what I was thinking of some of them, but this one's not illusion at all, and I don't remember what I was alluding to in this other one. So I felt pretty good about that. But, um, this the only things he, he could uh, find to correct me on were very small in number. And uh, so when I put it up, um, and then I began to get more involved in South Asian studies, and uh, also through another chain of circumstances, um, writing about West African Nigerian uh, novelists got me into other circles. And, um, and I soon discovered that this was part of a larger literary critical movement called post-colonialism. And uh, that always struck me as odd in that it's true that some novels like Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart um, show the evils that happened under colonialism and and then talk about things that happened later. Um, but it didn't seem to me, and it doesn't seem to me today, that the, the literature of India and West Africa, South Africa, um, even certain places in Latin America and so on, really fit very well under the label of post-colonial because the authors have such different interests. They're going off in different ways. And it struck me as very confining to say, well, how does this relate to the colonial experience? Sure, it's good to talk about the evils of that, and, and Rushdie has certainly done that, but he's also interested in the way that India has been divided between the Muslims and the Hindus. And that had nothing to do with the English. In fact, the English 
often in, in Indian writing turn up as sort of these interlopers who blundered around, caused a lot of damage, but really weren't in the mainstream of what really concerns Indians and, and what still is of importance to them today, that the uh, Muslim-Hindu relationship has had a much more powerful historical influence uh, than the British in terms of continuing controversies and so on. So I was, I always chafed at the label post-colonial as being the one that was appropriate for any discussion of people whose ethnic background or parentage was linked in some way to these former colonized countries. Um, I just found it not really useful. And I spoke out at a uh, conference on South Asian studies to that effect and um, it kind of led into a dead end. Um, some young people told me that what I was saying really inspired them, hit the nail on the head as far as they were concerned. These were people who were themselves South Asian. Um, but I couldn't get published. I had a piece that was tentatively accepted by the editor of the journal and uh, never got published. Nobody wanted to touch my satanic verses annotations because they were afraid that somebody would come after their editors and assassinate them. Um, one uh, Japanese translator had been knifed to death for translating satanic verses. So it was just poison. And people are, would still continue to write to me saying, we'd really love to have an essay um, about Rushdie or some other South Asian subject for anthologies coming forward. And I say, well, it's a really nice piece that I wrote that's part of my satanic verses project. And no, I don't think we're interested in that, but yeah, can't you come up with a different topic? Uh, to me, that's not political bias. That's just plain old cowardice. <laughs> well, we remember that book uh, now, looking back on it, as that was what drove Salman Rushdie into hiding yes. actual living underground um, because of the apparently the extensiveness and the uh, seriousness of death threats. And it's been long enough ago now, we should probably remind people that that was part of the publication of that book, which was a rare achievement in this day and age that uh, something would draw that much attention yeah. be so vilified right so I was approached by this press Greenwood Press which does academic reference books and uh, most of the reference books but other books as well for use by um, for libraries they really they saw their target as libraries and so they actually commissioned me to write this book in which I talked about a series of South Asian authors and selected one work to concentrate on. The one that was most tough for me was Rabindranath Tagore, who won a Nobel Prize. And as uh, he, he translated his own work, which was a big mistake because he was not an eloquent. Everybody says that in Bengali, his writing is so much more beautiful than his in English. I didn't really want to write about him. I found something to write about called Quartet, published in 1915. But... Um, the idea was to write about these things from a point of view that would help readers to get into the works, uh, understand them, give them uh, an opening. And it was to be aimed at a high school audience or a beginning college audience. And the vision of Greenwood was that it would be bought by libraries. Well, they always charge an arm and a leg for their books. And like a lot of cynical academic publishers, they have this notion that um, we don't have to sell a lot of books. We'll just sell one that libraries can't resist, and then we'll put a big quacking fee on it, which is a 
stupid <laughs> policy in my libraries were being cut and their resources all the time. My wife was a librarian and I was, you know, very acutely aware of the struggles that libraries had. And I thought, now this is the kind of book that I'll be out in a cheap paperback and marketed to reading groups, mm-hmm. you know, discussing some popular authors uh, like Rushdie and Harlan Hadi Roy. Um, but they didn't see it that way at all. So the book has sort of just had a marginal existence. Libraries couldn't afford to buy it for the most part. Um, the general public didn't understand. I've had plenty of people that I talk to about it. I show them the book and they, they say, oh, so this is an anthology of short stories? I say, no, it's not an anthology. It's all my writing about these works. And it's meant to be a interesting introduction that's usable. So the philosophy between that, what it has in common with my common errors in English usage, is that they're both trying to be reader-friendly. They're both trying to say, these are topics that are sometimes made more difficult and complex than they need to be. And if you'd like a way into understanding these issues, here's something that I think could be helpful. That's, I've always thought of myself, you know, teaching as, as challenge, that's important, but Teaching is helpfulness, I think, is fundamental. Um, so anyway, I've, I've always retained an interest in South Asian literature, but I still bristle at the term post-colonial, and I wrote the paper that I wrote, which never got published, on post-colonialism as it relates to South Asian literature is, is also up on my website, and we should make a link to. Uh, now, let's talk about common errors in English usage and where that fit into your academic career. It's the book you published that people objected to the most. <laughs> yes. Usually not to my face, but, but uh, a couple of the professors in my department were actually working on a volume of, of why the concept of incorrect usage in English is racist. And that, you know, that became the focus for a long time of our composition program. So parallel with this whole literary thing that we talked about last time was a big push uh, to turn composition into a very political direction. And we had a director of um, composition for a while who said the number one priority of the freshman composition course would be to fight racism. You know, yeah, people should probably be against racism. Is that really the main function of a composition course? And um, do you really want to be attacking those who criticize what they think of as poor English usage as the, the main target rather than concentrating on helping students to express themselves more eloquently and effectively? Um, there was this huge gulf. And of course, I had leapt across to the more controversial side, which I've done through my whole career, but I didn't always look at the neat alignment of left and right. You know, Rushdie clearly didn't, uh, couldn't be viewed exactly as somebody that conservatives were loved, certainly not. Um, but on the other hand, he was somebody that deeply troubled radicals as well. And for that very reason, I found him very interesting and wanted to help share his voice. But, um, with common errors in English usage, I was taking a, a leap right over <laughs> that chasm. Uh, the chair of our department was a technical writing teacher. Technical writing teachers tend to be worlds removed from composition teachers in their political philosophy. They're all tend to be liberals, but as technical writers, I want you to get it right and be clear. 
And that's really a high priority. And a lot of the composition faculty at that time were putting much more emphasis on political attitudes than I thought was really appropriate. And, and my chair was the one who wrote an originally small book, Correcting Common Student Errors in English, that uh, inspired me to go ahead and create Common Errors in English usage on the web, and then eventually in the book that uh, you edited and published in that uh, has sold so extremely well. But at the time when we first posted, there was this thought that, well, maybe this will be used in classrooms. It has occasionally, very, very rarely been used in a classroom, but the overall attitude of composition, the philosophy of composition is just hostile to that kind of thing. So it's had very nice sales. It's way outsold some very famous contemporary novels that the New York Times thought greatly of, but which sold in the low thousands. So I'm pretty happy with it, but uh, it did certainly uh, cause a lot of people to raise their eyebrows about what the hell I was I getting into. It really didn't have anything to do with my academic background, my field in literature, um, but it was something I did as a hobby just because I was interested in it. But again, my approach was not to just join all the voices of the critics who were berating people for their usage, but to take a different slant and say, well, how can I help people who are struggling with language, who are coming up against these editors and parents and teachers and girlfriends who judge their language and put myself on their side, not by saying there's nothing wrong with your usage, rather saying, Here's what these people think is wrong with your usage, and here's some things you might think about uh, to express yourself more effectively. So I saw myself as not the enemy of bad writing, but the encourager of communication and success in writing. It's hard for me not to be sympathetic to people who endeavor to be more egalitarian or to fight against uh, racism or... or um, classism or these sorts of things. But um, on the other hand, on the particular issue of English usage and what that can do for you and what that cannot do for you, uh, we covered this with our discussion with Chris Weigel a few weeks ago. Uh, you always have to consider the register that you are in. So there could be a time when it's completely appropriate to have sloppier speech or sloppier writing you know, you're texting and it's sometimes it's kind of silly to feel like you need to be completely grammatical and completely uh, uh, spelling everything out entirely and entirely correctly. And uh, it's just a quick note to your friend to tell them that you'll you'll be there on time after all. So that's communication has primacy over correctness. Uh, but there are times when sloppiness and uh, inattention to detail will get you in a lot of trouble. So it's the question is, at what point are you not being racist and not being classist? You're actually trying to lift people up and help them. You know, I'm trying to actually get away from that sort of essentialism that says something is wrong and something is right. Although I do say that of some things. This is just plain mistake. A backslash and a slash are not the same thing. But um, rather saying, you know, it's fine that this language is... Uh, popular in your particular social setting. Um, but just be aware, there are things that might get you in trouble. Like, uh, so you're going on a trip to North Korea, 
for a, an exchange of some kind, and um, probably shouldn't bring along a Bible. <laughs> you can wind up in jail. <laughs> that doesn't mean the Bible is bad, or that you shouldn't carry Bibles, or that have any criticism of your interest in the Bible. Look out, there's some people who want to put you in jail if you have a Bible with you, and, you're, and that's, that's happened recently in Korea. So, it's a whole different way of viewing it from instead of standing on high on Mount Olympus and handing down dictums on what's correct and incorrect, uh, rather saying, we live in a messy environment where uh, people are going to be judging your writing. And here's what they're saying. You, you just might want to be aware of it. You can say to hell with you and go on and write the way you want. That's fine. That's your choice. But it's not fair to handicap you by not letting you know if you're a writing teacher some people really get annoyed by this expression. I think it's fine. You think it's fine, but you're probably not going to get published or you're, you're going to get graded down by your music professor, perhaps, um, because you use something that he considers incorrect. Just be aware. That's my approach to the whole subject. Well, and you address that very well in your retirement speech, uh, your justification for having a book called Common Errors in English Usage. And I know you've mentioned in the past on this podcast that you almost wish the word errors weren't in there. But uh, for better or worse, there are a lot of helpful hints that will get you out of some jams that you won't want to get yourself into. A lot of people in academia find the notion that there are errors in English usage to be problematic. Right. And the word problematic used to have fairly neutral uh, associations. I mean, well, it, it's something that an attempt at solving a problem, say designing a new form of energy generation, is problematic. Uh, the wind farms kill a lot of eagles, for instance, and that makes them problematic. But it came to be used as a sort of a general judgmental term for ideas that I don't agree with by people on the left almost exclusively. So that uh, Rushdie, for instance, would become a problematic writer because he didn't align himself exactly with your ideas and principles of what was worth discussing. And to me, it's uh, wishy-washy, sort of evasive language that also makes concrete something which is just uh, a political disagreement. If you're saying that somebody's ideas are problematic, you're saying, I've got the solution. You are the problem. <laughs> or I know the truth and your ideas don't align with that truth. And so I just found it very annoying and offensive um, to use it. It's, it's people pretending that they're being more open-minded than they are. They're trying to argue for tolerance. And yet by denouncing something as problematic, it's just another way of saying it's politically incorrect. I'd rather just people say, you know, I really hate this novel because it has ideas that offend me rather than saying problematic. That takes you out of the discussion. It's not just your personal point of view or your political uh, affiliates point of view. It's the truth in capital T's. Well, and it's quite a vague criticism, isn't it? But right. uh, it's a way of just addressing the issue and skirting it at the same time. Yeah, another term that got used a lot is slippery. That certain terms are slippery. If you disagree with what somebody is saying and think they're trying to evade the issue or not framing it in an honest way, you'd call them slippery rather than deceptive. 
or tricky or something like that. Um, another way of making it seem objective, well, it's really a very subjective judgment that you're making. Another one you were going to talk about was interrogating. Sometimes you hear about interrogating a text. What's that about? And I still see this all the time. People interrogate texts. I think this must have come out of French criticism, but um, I've never investigated through it. Interrogating a text, that means uh, questioning it from a political point of view. And to me, interrogation means what most people think outside of uh, literary circles think it means tying somebody to a chair and, and uh, beating them with a rubber hose or waterboarding them. Um, why would you do that to a literary text? You know, you may not like Milton, but uh, you don't want to torture the guy. <laughs> um, it puts you in the position of not only being the authority and the other person, the one that has to surrender to you and confess and change his mind, but it also has horrible associations. How could people not understand that the general public outside their surroundings would hear you say, we're going to interrogate this author and not think, what a stupid, offensive kind of thing to say. And explaining what you mean really doesn't help. There is a certain tone deafness that came into literary theory through French deconstructionists who used language in ways that are often more baffling and obscurantist than they are illuminating. Well, there's an element of Humpty Dumpty there where he tells Alice, uh, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. You had a couple of other phrases you wanted to talk about, too. Two terms that are widely used in politically oriented literary criticism that I find really annoying and offensive. One is cosmopolitanism, and that is um, used to describe people who have a point of view and a subject matter that is oriented toward dominant uh, Western view of the world, um, and especially in post-colonial literature. Um, people are faulted for being cosmopolitan. That is a term that goes back to Stalinism, and it was used to describe anybody that was counter-revolutionary and writing about things that didn't forward uh, Stalin's particular understanding of the world. Now, there are not very many people who remember that, who are aware of it at all, but there's a certain shallowness in understanding and the left in this country that leads them not to think seriously about terminology and its roots and its history. Um, they want to pursue a certain uh, linguistic usages if they align with their politics. But when it comes back to things that were popular among the circles who supported Stalinism or Maoism, there's not the same curiosity. Americans are uh, really educated much more about Nazism than they are about Stalinism or Maoism. And it's not that I would accuse these leftists of being sympathetic with Stalin or with Mao, but there's a deep down feeling, I think, that there's a danger that if you criticize what these people who were considered the ultimate leftist to be, their history, their theories, and their actions, that somehow you're betraying the cause. And, and there's just a general nervousness about dealing with it. And that results in what I call just tone deafness on the part of a lot of these people who can pick up a term like cosmopolitanism 
and um, revive it without any sensitivity to its roots. The other one is formalism. Uh, people who concentrate on experiments in fiction, on putting emphasis on the way a work is constructed and, and on the language and how it's put together rather than the political ideas and social realities that inform it. And that's a, a classic Stalinist criticism that dismissed all kinds of experimentation in art, especially in the visual arts, for uh, being not politically correct in a Stalinist sense. That one, there is so much history behind it that is so bad. I just would think that that's a term that ought to be stricken out of our vocabularies a long time ago is a, a word that was put to evil purposes and wound up putting people in concentration camps and getting them shot. And to use formalism in this blithe way was very much the same kind of meaning now, even when the people doing it don't have any power to shoot and exile people, uh, is, again, sort of historical tone deafness. The other thing about cosmopolitanism is that was the Stalinist label that was used to mean Jewish a lot of the times. Mm. That the Jews, even if they were active members of the Communist Party, were not truly loyal to the Russian Revolution and that therefore they were not to be trusted. And so it became a code word to be used to, to mean Jewish. Um, and that to me is just uh, another instance of when in history, uh, a word has become so contaminated with something truly evil that it just should not be revived. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think what I'd like to do is is just end by uh, reading the last paragraphs of, of my talk. Right. So this was your address that you gave upon your retirement, and this is how it concludes. So I, I wrapped up what I had to say about politics and literature. Um, I was trying to express in this talk how my interest in the Common Errors Project had uh, a different focus, but still some of the same roots as my interest in teaching literature. Literature is often at its best when it's ambiguous and puzzling. Ordinary communication is not. So teaching people to think more complexly about literature is, is suitable to me for literature but trying to get people to decomplexify their language when they're trying to express themselves in non-literary forms is also a thing that is suitable for that particular kind of expression. Second, the complexities and surprises of literature are intentional and lead us to admire the writers when we understand them, whereas verbal and written stumbles are mostly unintentional and tend to make people look foolish or poorly educated. Knowing standard usage lets you make a conscious choice of whether to say penultimate when you mean last or exalt when you mean exult. Third, the drive to prune the canon and throw open the doors of English usage flowed from similar impulses to reject the irreducible complexity of both literature and social interaction in the service of a political ideal. Finally, my experience of trying to explain language matters to a broad public using simple language and humorous illustrations seems to have found a large audience hungry for such material. Millions of visitors to my site and thousands of emails reinforce every day the notion that people find guidance on language matters just plain useful. So um, I thought that if you start at the point of view of the people you're talking to, 
and what is useful for you to think about literature in a complex way, which is not narrowly political, is useful for you. And to understand how to write a clear sentence is also useful. And to me, that trumps following any one particular political line of thought. Well, that wraps it up perfectly, Paul. Thank you for all this really uh, kind of a deep diving into your uh, all these literary terms and um, how they've been used over the past several years and uh, what the implications are. And these are very tricky waters to navigate, but uh, you've definitely helped. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Tom. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.